controversy, fun, and conversation. All the things that radio used to be. NapaBroadcasting.com Welcome back to NapaBroadcasting.com. It's not election time, but John Tudor is here anyway, bringing back an old tradition of John and I talking about subjects other than elections. We're going to uh, cover a few things that I think are worthy of your attention today. John, thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure. Good to have you here. And we're neighbors now because of the earthquake. I'm located just south of the college instead of way north of it. Well, you are, but how long are you going to be there for? What's the latest development on uh, Carruthers Building getting back together? Are you going to stay there? Are you going to move back? What's happening? We are moving back to Carruthers. Uh, The target date is now September of 2015. Uh, they've the DA is back in Carruthers in their old space. They're going to take over part of the upstairs. Elections will be back upstairs, and then our assessor, recorder, county clerk divisions will be back in our old space downstairs. And how was this decision arrived at? Because there is space for you down there. Certainly, there's a lot of extra space down there, even before Health and Human Services moves in to the old day lab space that you're in now. How was the decision arrived at to to move you back? Well, I think it was, um, and I think it's very much the correct decision, by the way. I think the organic decision was, is we're not going to let the earthquake throw off our long-term plans. We are going to continue down the road we were on, which was keeping Carruthers for another five to eight years. At some point, it's going to get sold and go back into downtown right. for other purposes. Right. Than I mean, I, I would argue, not to interrupt you, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. but I would argue that you could look at the earthquake as a positive thing, and it might have been a way to speed up that schedule and get that uh, white elephant sold sooner. Well, the problem is that even though there's a lot of space at uh, the old Day Lab South Campus, it's not very good space in terms of office space and right. meeting spaces and all of those kinds of things. So um, the board's going back uh, in May to right. the top floor of the administration building, which is under construction. Uh, We'll be going back to Carruthers, and then there's going to be some time to look. Um, There's going to be a lot of work that needs to be done, as you know. They have to get the board and that staff out of Building 2 because that's where Health and Human Services is going and the rest of Building 1. Building 4 is not at all made. You haven't toured our offices. You need to come down. No, I've just been in the outside. Yeah, you need to come down and look at the big labs in the back. (laughs) You know, I keep expecting to see little white mice in cages, but they're not there anymore. Using their inhalers. Right. We're uh, we're spread out all over this huge building. So it works. I mean, we're able to function. And the public's finding us. But I'm going to be glad to be back at Carruthers, get back in our normal setting, and then participate with the county mothers and fathers on where we're going uh, over the next five to eight years. Right. But once you move back, you're there for a while. I would expect so, yeah, because uh, one plan might be to uh, bring more down to Carrither from the downtown. You know, the long-term plan is because of the courts buildings, both the historic right. justice and the new criminal courts building, that the courts are going to stay downtown, right. which means the public defender and the DA and probation uh, are all going to stay downtown. The sheriff's bailiffs Even are though there. the jail may not be staying downtown. That's right. And that is an issue in terms of transportation. But... Um, the, uh, the long term might be to retrofit one of the other buildings at 
uh, the South Campus right. to handle administration and offices like ours. There's plenty of room there. It's going to take several million dollars to do that because, you know, taking the labs out and restructuring right. and replanning is a big deal. They're spending, I think, 10 to 15 million dollars on buildings one and two which is still as you know a 45 million dollar savings over rebuilding the the campus on old sonoma road so it was a stroke of genius even without the earthquake to buy the south campus yeah it's interesting to think about i mean i'm not the first person to say this by far but what would have happened in the earthquake had that day labs facility not been there not been bought not been owned by the county even as a temporary solution Absolutely, it would have been a disaster. I mean, I had to conduct an election, as you know. We were up and running on the Tuesday after the Sunday earthquake, uh, both at South Campus and our recorder and clerks were crowded into a small area downtown. So, no, it was just... Uh, I don't know where everybody would have gone. No, and I I gave a presentation to uh, some of my fellow colleagues up in Sacramento from the elections world, and I said, look, two things you got to think about, your network and where you're going to be if your building's closed. I said, we were out at 3.20 a.m. on a Sunday morning, and then all of our stuff got picked up by people we didn't control and moved, and we had to re- establish ourselves fortunately it wasn't october 24th with the right. november 4th election so it worked fine but well, we were very elections fortunate. have been canceled i mean that's happened too not often well i i mean the only one that comes to mind is the new york city election um <clears throat> immediately following 9 11 right but not a big federal <clears throat> election right. you know that was a new york city size election and of course they postponed that after 911 until they could do it but a federal election you know you don't hear about it you hear about the polling places being extended or special stuff being brought in but you know the earthquake affected a lot more than the county as you know we sent out 1400 letters to property owners who were both red tagged and yellow tagged and how did that work did you send out those letters that people have to apply to be reassessed? Did you make a proactive reassessment in some neighborhoods? How did that work? Well, it's a twofold process. There is an application process, but the assessor who knows about a calamity, and guess what? I knew about the earthquake, may also on his or her own initiative start the process. So we've mailed out to 1,400 people. We haven't gotten that many applications back. We've gotten a few hundred. And how did you arrive at that 1,400 list? From the list uh, from the inspectors who went out. Uh So when the city and the county went out, we picked up that entire list and mailed to all 1,400 people who who were either red or yellow tagged. Now, since then, we've learned of a couple of properties that weren't red or yellow tagged for some reason. What about the FEMA inspectors? Because they inspected places that some of the other inspectors didn't when they got calls from people. That's right. No, we didn't have a feed in to them because they're federal. We had a direct feed into the city and county because we already have that information. And they were wonderful in keeping us informed. Now, you know, we've been reducing values. I just signed a roll correction. A house out on Redwood Road had to be torn down. I mean, just gone, scraped, because it just was not longer usable, and they're going to rebuild. So we took that off. The famous house down on Oak Street that's leaning, Leaning, and they had to take the people out of both houses on either side because they weren't sure which way the house might fall. Right. 
uh, we just took their completely off. It's I mean, truly the house divided against itself. Exactly. They, uh, their land value remains, but they had a $221,000 structure value, which is gone until they figure out what to do. And, you know, I've met with that person. She's not a wealthy woman. Uh, she doesn't have a lot of money. They're looking at three to $400,000 to get the house back in, in stable condition, including retro. Right. She said it'd be cheaper to tear it down, but it's an 1880-something house, and she doesn't want to lose it. So she's looking at that. I don't know how she'll be able to afford it. It's going to be easier to tear it down. We don't know what's going to happen. I had another one come up, Jeff, where a woman called me the other day who I happen to know from she taught music to our grandchildren. Um the house next door to her came off its foundation and slipped onto her fence and knocked it down. So the house is sort of leaning onto her property. She wants to sell her property and doesn't know what to do. So everybody calls me, and I'm not the one who can wave my magic wand, but I contacted. And she said the city wasn't moving forward. So I said, look, I'm not an attorney, and I'm not an expert on this, but I think you have two routes. One is to approach the city about getting that property condemned or something else. Mm -hmm. And the other is a private nuisance suit of some kind where you would file suit against the owner of that property to get this repaired so you or torn, torn down. Well, apparently, the word I got from the property owner was that the city wasn't in a position at this time to start something. The city didn't know that. So, I mean, this the property owner of the house who wants to sell probably talked to a staff right. person or something. So I cop, blind copied my message back to the person who owned the property to the planning director of the city. They're wonderful. He got right back to me. I just read his message. They've already had one of their chief building inspectors out looking at. They weren't aware of this situation, at least not at that level. He doesn't know what they're going to do because he's got to weigh the impact on the property owner who wants to sell against the impact on the person whose property is damaged. So, but, you know, there's a whole bunch of human stories going on out there in earthquake land. What about people that didn't get, that are beyond the 1,400 that got notices from you, but that uh, may have had damage and may be uh, appropriate for reassessment? Well, there's, well, let's talk about whether it's appropriate or not. First of all, there's a $10,000 limit. So, for instance, my wife and I own a house down on First Street, and it uh, got interior cracks in the plaster, right. no structural damage. Um, I went to SBA. They were wonderful. I've registered with FEMA online. My wife and I got an SBA loan at market rate because we don't qualify for And, you know, some people are getting loans at 2%, which is wonderful. Um, so it's a small loan. Uh, it's less than $10,000. I'm not going to apply, right. of course, and we'll get the work done and pay back our, our SBA loan. So a lot of people, I say, unless you're well over the 10,000 limit. Now, I had one woman who approached me at the gym. I'm always on duty. And she said, I have $50,000 worth of damage, and I've already repaired it. It wasn't structural. It was interior, and her driveway cracked and those kinds of things. And I said, well, there's really no need to apply because we, we wouldn't take the value off for that long. This house on Oak Street is going to be a few months, if not longer, before right. it's repaired. So you want that break. So any Anybody can contact us. Uh, you know, let me just give my email address as I'm used to doing. It's john, J-O-H-N dot T-U-T-E-U-R 
at countyofnapa.org. That's John Tudor at countyofnapa.org, and there are no spaces in County of Napa. And we'll be in touch. And anybody, we have they have a year, right. so they have until mm-hmm. August of 2015 to fill out a form. In the meantime, we'll continue to be. But operating. it's got to be some real damage. I mean, exactly. It's got to be more than just a small amount of damage. Exactly. Right. So. If it's going to make it worth their while. Now, that doesn't mean it's too late to apply to FEMA now in SBA because that yeah, time FEMA's period's done. Right. right. But, you know, I have a number of people who've come in uh, with their FEMA loan, uh, their SBA loans, and they said, no, we're fine. It, it's interior. We don't want to go through that paperwork. The other thing on my recorder side, we haven't talked about that for a while, is when SBA does a secured loan, it's a deed of trust like uh-huh. a mortgage, they have to come to record it with us. And then, strange story with this one gentleman, um, and they usually bring two copies. And the original we keep for four weeks while we check the film and do all that. But the conform copy can be sent right back to the SBA so they can release the funds. They won't release them without some evidence that it's been recorded. So in one case, through a mix-up, both sets, without being signed, were sent to SBA. So they had to create another two pairs. And then the person didn't bring it with him. Uh, And then so I tried copying four of the ten pages to save him a little money. And the FEMA wouldn't accept that, so he's going to wait because he's not in any rush to get the money. But until the original goes back to them, they won't release the funds. So it, it's been – but, you know, people are very understanding. And once they find us, and we're right. doing a better job with signage and everything now, so people are fine. Well, now that you're moving back. Yeah, well, not for another six or eight months, right. so six months. But people are finding you down there. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had a line at the recording counter this afternoon. We haven't had a line like that for months, not just because of the earthquake. It was a busy day today. And why do you think that was? I have no idea. Some may have been SBA loans. A lot of people were, you know, doing internal family transfer kinds of things. So, no, I don't think there's any huge real estate. I mean, the real estate business is doing okay, I understand. But we haven't seen that kind of an increase. Well, I mean, you're on the front lines of, of seeing how the real estate business is doing. Well, at the recorder office, right. yes. Yeah. I, you know what we should talk about, which is sort of in your wheelhouse, so to speak, but really not. There have been not so much in Napa. But there have been a series of stories of late, including one major story that was in the New York Times, of foreign investors essentially buying property in the U.S. In New York, this this article was focused on, but we know that there's been some of it here in the Napa Valley. Are these the billionaires right. buying penthouses? But you have no idea who's buying it, that it's through oh, corporations, through, corporations right. through right. whatever. And it's all very mysterious. You have no idea who the real buyers are. You know, there's like four LLCs between right. the buyer and, and the actual recording of the deed. We're not seeing much of that. We've had a couple of very famous people, including now that he's gone, Robin Williams, which it's pretty well known that he owned property sure. here. But that was owned in the name of a trustee, and the mailing address was in New York. Right. And the trustee's name wasn't Williams. It was George Schmo. Right. Uh, from but we're, the, we're not talking about celebrities as much right. as 
well, wealthy individuals we, in, in I think China, Russia. I think wherever. one of the differences here may be that people want the cachet of the Napa Valley after their name and that they're proud to own property. Um, but we do have a lot of per- properties purchased in LLCs. I don't think necessarily that's to, you know, uh, hide who the eventual owner is, but I, it's not like New York where clearly you're having a lot of big money come into an area to protect it. You know, with all the talk about sanctions in Russia, right. I, I don't know if you saw, but the Greek foreign minister said, why aren't you going after the countries where all the money's hiding? Right. You know, so we, I don't see that here. You don't see any of it or you just don't, I don't see much I, of it? Other than the celebrity types. I mean, we had... One person who, you know, has done a great job of hiding his uh, his family's wealth and everything, but he bought the property in his own name. Right. So, you know. Uh, because there are certainly properties here that are in, uh, you know, let's say $20 million and, and up price range that uh, right. would be perfect opportunities for people to sink a lot of money into that they were protecting. Yeah, I think that the difference between here and the New York second homes or whatever those homes right. are for the Russian billionaires or oligarchs is that here people are on the ground. Uh, they're coming here. They're running a winery. Mm-hmm. They're making a brand for themselves. Right. Mr. Kenzo, Kenzo Estate, didn't come here to hide. He right. came here to make sure everybody knew he was here. So I think that's a big difference. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But. You just wonder, because th- there was talk at one point here about a lot of international money coming in. and uh, Well, there uh, is a lot of international money coming. A lot of Chinese money is mm-hmm. coming. As you know, we've had right. several huge winery sales to the right. Chinese, um, and that's continuing, and it's going to continue to go on. You know, I think there's uh, a lot of international money coming in now. And it is removed, but it's just like any other investor would be removed, not because they're famous or Russian oligarchs. But, you know, the big hotel complexes, I'm sure the Ritz-Carlton project over by where the garbage company used to be. I'm sure the St. Regis project down off of Stanley Lane. I'm sure they've got international money. Oh, sure. I mean, just – and one of the firms that's working on the Ritz-Carlton I know is from Florida. So Uh my guess is there's some South American money in there and other things. What do we know? And and maybe you don't have – I mean, this is not something that's possible to ascertain. But there's always been a lot of talk about it. In the last election, there was a lot of talk about it in St. Helena. The number of second homes and really trying to get a handle on how many are second homes. Why are you laughing? I'm laughing because you're right on top of a topic that I was at a, a function the other day and someone came up to me and said, the word is that 40% of the homes in uh, St. Helena are second homes. And I said, well, sounds a little high to me, but it's That's probably, the number that I hear. Yeah. And I said, it's probably, it's higher than five and I don't know how much less it is than what, but I said- and one of the issues they're saying is those people should be in somehow contributing towards building the housing or making other housing affordable. Utter nonsense. But well, that's it's going to be hard to do. Right. Whether, right. You, whether the theory's good or not, it's going to be hard to execute. Uh, but that, that, and there are other areas within the county which are second homes. Mm-hmm. But and there's no way to really ascertain what that number is. I mean, the number of 40% is a number that's been bandied about a lot. I right. mean, I've used it. People use it. But we really don't know what 
what the number is, and there's no way you have a handle on that. Well, let me tell Your you. office. No, right. As the assessor, there's one thing I can tell you, and I can tell you every home in St. Helena, in the city limits, that is owned and occupied by the owner because they have a homeowner's exemption, right? You mm-hmm. can't do that unless under penalty of perjury you say you're going to live there. Right. That's category number one. We know those are not second homes. Right. The next category is homes where the situs address, in other words, 1512 Allen Avenue, is the same as the mailing address, but there's no homeowners. Right. Well, you can't be sure that's a second home because, one, they may never filed for their homeowners right. and they don't know about it. Or, two, they are a, a second home and they just don't file for the homeowners because they live in San Francisco or Miami or something like that. The third category is where the situs address does not match the mailing address. In other words, it's 1211 Stockton Street and the mailing address is 1425 Modesto in in Modesto. Well, clearly that could be a rental rather than the second home. So there's a difference between a rental unit and a home that's vacant except when somebody's there. So, you know, between those three categories of non-second homes – I have a little trouble thinking 40% is, is – it's not unreasonable, but I think it's probably maybe a, a high by 15 or 20%. But that's just a guess. Yeah, there are also some people – I mean, it's, it's tricky because there are people that might live in the city. I mean, I know this in a couple of cases that have essentially a second home in St. Helena but claim it as a primary home – because it's easier to, to do business here. It's, it just makes life easier for them in some respects. Right. And, you know, in many cases, their pied a terre in San Francisco is their second home. Right. right? We had one situation where, you know, if you file a homeowner's exemption in San Francisco, there are certain things that in terms of condo conversion or something mm-hmm. else or rent control. If you're in a rent-controlled building, well, we had a case where someone from San Francisco contacted us, a firm that looks into this, and saw that the person had a mailing address in Napa. So all we can tell them is whether they do or don't have a homeowner's exemption in Napa, but those, or whether they're registered to vote here, or whether, you know, I can't tell them about their driver's license because right. I don't have access to that. So those kinds of things go on a little bit too. And we even get those from out of state. Florida has a huge tax break for a homeowner, mm-hmm. and they've contacted me on a couple of occasions saying, does X have a homeowner's exemption in your state? Because huh. we don't check between states we do check between counties so somebody's not claiming two homeowners exemptions and we've written back and said yes and then that person's lost their homestead there or they've tried to cancel it here or whatever has happened so we do get involved in those kinds yeah because the second home issue is people really you know it's become a controversial issue particularly up there where everything is controversial of course the time of day of course Talk a little bit about something you sent me some material on, and and you got into a conversation with it, I guess, uh, about the history of Prop 13. And you got into this whole long 
conversation with somebody about it. And, and I discovered that it's something you'd been interested in for a long time and that you were the original uh, decision when the original decision came down about Prop 13. Well, the original decision, of course, was by the voters right, in but June I mean, of 1978. It was in the courts. And it was challenged in the Supreme Court of California and it was upheld. Right. And then in 19, I just looked it up. I can't remember the date. I think it was 1993. A woman in Los Angeles sued my colleague at the time down there, uh, saying that it was unconstitutional under the Equal Protection Laws, the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution. So that case made it all the way to the Supreme Court. And thanks to your former employer, KVON, I got a press pass to that hearing. I paid my own way back, of course. It wasn't, that was on my expense because it was fun. And it I, couldn't I, have been any other way. That was uh, in the Tom Young days. Yeah. Well, <laughs> he no, wasn't, wasn't paying that. for I it. Mean, I didn't go on the county nickel because <laughs> I was working for the county. So I flew back, and here I sit, thanks to KVON, in the front row of the press box at the United States Supreme Court, right below the justices, and I listened to the arguments. It was just a fascinating experience for somebody in the business, so to speak. And as I said in my email to you and in talking to that other person, the judges ruled that you can discriminate, you can't discriminate on age, national origin, sexual orientation, but you can discriminate on acquisition date. They said everybody understands, I mean, some people don't, but everybody understands Prop 13, and they know that their taxes are going to be high, and if they leave their house, they're going to go up to buy another house in California. And he said as long as it's knowledge and it's not based on a protected category that's illegal, they upheld it, and it was an eight-to-one decision. And, you know, it's been that way. Now, you know, there's still one myth about Prop 13, though. And I think you and I have talked about this. I don't know how many times, but it doesn't hurt to talk about it one more time. So somebody says, well, if I move, I'm going to lose my Prop 13 base. Well, if you're over 55, you can take it with you in Napa County. But everybody has a Prop 13 base. Has to be in the same county or the same state? In the same county. County. Now, there are eight counties that let you bring it to them. El Dorado, and then some big counties like Alameda and San Mateo and Santa Clara. But most of the small counties don't let you bring it from another right. county. But if you're under 55, or if you just came to California, right. people say, well, I thought you only had a Prop 13 base if you lived there in 1975 or 1978. But no, every time you buy, you get a Proposition 13 base year value. Right. And so if you bought in 88, you got a Prop 13 value. And if somebody buys next door to you in 2014, guess what? They're going to pay a lot more in taxes than you are because you've been in your house for 30 years. You're not quite 26 years. And so that kind of misunderstanding about pro- everybody who owns a home in California has a Prop 13 base year value. It may just not go all the way back to 78 or 75. Right. And of course, uh, people looking at this from uh, New Jersey or New York are shocked by it, period, given what what they pay. You know, you mentioned the New York Times article that you read. Well, I read the New York Times Sundays, and there's a thing on houses for what you can get for 2.5 million. Right. Well, it's always, it's 2.5 million or 100,000, never 100,000, but it's always what you can get for. Right. And, And there were three in this last Sundays, and I cut them out to give to our staff. One was in Elk, California, which is on the coast, just before you get to the Navarro River. Beautiful area. 
nice, beautiful home great. on a bluff looking over. So here's what I look at. How much are their property taxes? Because it says California, $2.5 million, Was it $2.9 million? Something like that. 32000 in property taxes. Next to it was a plantation in Louisiana, $2.9 million on 10 acres that had been part of a 1,000-acre. Right. Beautiful old 1840s colonial structure. $2.9 million, beautiful, restored Taxes six thousand one hundred dollars a year. Same house, same value. Uh, you know, a less about a fifth right. of California. The next, the next one I killed don't. me. Do you remember it? No, but I just know where you're going with this. The next one killed me. I'm trying to remember what state it was. I think it was Florida. It was a penthouse in Florida, and two point nine million, same price. The taxes, and this killed me. I've never seen this before. $59,000 a year, which is almost double California. And we're yeah. usually not at the top because in New Jersey and, and other Florida's places, not at the top. If that was in New Jersey. Oh, yeah. It would be, be or New York. It would be at least 75000 Plus $2,000 in condo fees right. a month. Right. You know, so. I always cut those when they're that big a spread. I always cut them out, especially when there's a California property in there. So, you know, Californians are doing okay compared to much of the rest of the country, which is still on the cyclical reassessment every four years. Regardless of what you did to your house, you get reassessed based on what sales are in your neighborhood. Well, I look at it a little differently. I mean, California is doing very well when you compare it to places that anybody would actually want to live. You know. <laughs> You're I not mean for that New vast that no, that no, I mean New Jersey's fine. I yeah. mean I put, include New Jersey in that category, uh-huh. but I don't include you know anything pretty much between New Jersey and California. You're not an Iowa fan, no. or Nebraska. No, well I will not spread that to the Iowa Chamber it's, of Commerce. It's, it's perfectly all right. They may know if yeah. they're listening to your podcast. Do you? I mean, have you ever thought about the number of places in this? Let's just limit it to this country that you would actually be willing to live. Well, I've lived in only two, uh, three, San right. Francisco, Cleveland, Ohio, and here. And there are only two of those that I would go back to. <laughs> no Cleveland, huh? No, no Cleveland. <laughs> uh, Cleveland was a wonderful city. I mean, it was— Back in, in the day. Well, yeah, 500 years ago. But, I mean, it was having— You mean its, you're not going back for the Republican convention? Oh, yeah, they're holding it there in Cleveland, yeah. I won't be going for that. have never been to a convention of any party. Uh, but, you know, when my grandfather passed away, my dad said, enough of the snow coming off of Lake Erie and enough of the summer humidity. And he and my mom had actually spent their honeymoon out here at the Bel Air Hotel in 1939. And so he, as wow. soon as he had the chance, he sold a house and a farm and a business in Ohio and bought a house and a ranch and a business out here. And here we are. It's been 64 years. This uh, this coming May, he bought the ranch. With Imagine my being there. In Boston. Oh, yeah. I have my cousins there, and she's coming out to see her, my other cousin, her son, and I hope she can get out. <laughs> it's crazy. Oh, yeah. We are very, very fortunate. You know, people travel all over the world, and we live in one of the destinations. You and I have talked about this. This is a global destination for people who own property, buy property. Another thing about international money coming here, it's because people want to – it's not so much investing in the Napa Valley, I don't think, as being here, you know, having this as one of their places that they can come. Before I let you go, I'm going to ask you something that 
I'm not sure you'll answer. I'm not sure there really is an answer, but 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 let's play with it for, mm-hmm. for a minute or two. Certainly, as you well know, there's a lot of talk at the moment, and don't know where any of it will go, but there's a lot of talk about how much further things are going to go in terms of winery development, and is there going to be some kind of moratorium, or will there be more limitations, and, and all the stuff that's mm-hmm. out there, and it's mm-hmm. floating around out there, and we'll see what, you know, the Board of Supervisors does and what the, what the general sentiment is over the next several months, really. To what extent do you look at that as impacting property values? If development is limited, if moratoriums happen, I'm not saying any of this is going to happen, but if you think about that in the abstract, to what extent does that impact property values and to what degree do you have to think about that? All right. Well, let me just put that in context of the Ag Preserve in 1968. It's coming up on its 37th anniversary this year in April. That was the big argument by the opponents of the Ag Preserve. You slap 20-acre zoning on our property, and it's, it was currently one acre at the time. You could split 20 acres into 20 parcels. You slap that on, we can't give our property to our kids. The property values are going to go in the tank. It's the end of the world. And uh, that was the lawsuit that they filed, both in Superior Court here. I think it only made it to the appellate court. I don't think it went to the California Supreme Court in 69 or 70. And it was upheld, the Ag Preserve, as a legitimate exercise of the police powers. Well, look at now. I mean, if we were Cupertino or Sunnyvale, which were gorgeous orchards back in the 40s and 50s, and I think I've told you the story, people used to drive down there to see the blossoms, like they come here for the harvest. Sure, Sunnyvale and Cupertino are more valuable now because Apple's build on it or Google's build on it. But for agricultural land, there's no land in the United States that's anywhere near as valuable as this. And we are now meeting European standards. You know, in Europe, I think you and I have talked about it, they sell by the square meter, by the square yard, so to speak, not by the acre. We're meeting, you know, so they're selling for 400 euros a square yard, which translates into about $300,000 an acre and or 200,000. And that's what we're selling for here. So no matter what happens, unless there's something like uh, a phylloxera outbreak or some unmanageable disease that wipes out the vineyard industry, I don't think that I have to, as the assessor, I have to worry about what's going to happen to property values. Moratoriums make things scarcer, which drives up the value. It drives up. I'm not saying down necessarily. No. It wasn't up or down. I'm I mean, not arguably, it, it becomes dr- more valuable. Sure. If you've got one of the, say they're going to, all right, that's it. We got 500 wineries. That's it. No more. <laughs> Those wineries just became a lot more expensive. The real And issue- do you have to then look at that in terms of, of no, the assessment the, side? No, the market will take care of it. First of all, there's no change of ownership by a moratorium. Right. So under Prop 13, there's nothing that happens until there's a change of ownership. So those prices would just go up as the market. Well, you know, you're seeing right. those prices now. $90 million paid for a, a winery and a vineyard up by Calistoga. A lot of that was brand and and other things right. that we don't assess for property tax purposes. But, you know, the a lot of the famous wineries have sold. Warren Winyarski sold his. Dan Duckhorn sold some of his. And so if there was a limit, prices are going to go up. So I think the real issue here is more both the human 
scale and the environmental scale. Are we running into any limitations on groundwater usage, on air pollution, on traffic, on conversion of watersheds that's going to affect the aquifers over the future? I don't have an answer, and I'm not saying it is. I mean, it's been our context since 1968 that in the unincorporated areas of Napa County, and I was on the board supporting this when we passed the general plan in 1977, urban uses belong in urban areas. And what we're seeing now is is that wineries are, in a sense, they're agricultural, but they're also industrial. Depending on their water usage needs, they're starting to impact those people who don't have water infrastructure like cities do. Of course, with the drought, everybody's in right. that situation. But, no, I, I'm looking for – I won't participate. It's not my job. I had my eight years doing that. But I think what comes out of the um, – uh, March 10th study session and where, where we're going to go from there. I think David Morrison's doing a great job trying to guide the department in looking at new ways of getting our arms around these issues. And I know the public's very interested. Public is interested, and it's, uh, I mean, it's very contentious. I mean, I think it's more contentious than it's been in a very long time. Well, one of the issues is it's easy to see the and I'm not knocking them for being opponents. I mean, I'm a neighbor of people, too, and, you know, I would be opposed if X was going to happen. I'm not knocking the opponents to the extent that the opponents are raising legitimate issues about the long-term health of both the natural and the human environment in Napa County. There is, And the organized side for, you know, promoting winery growth and vineyard growth is the area that that's what they do, and it's a legitimate cause for them. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I question the the human side, whether there is that. I mean, I don't buy the traffic argument. I, personally, I don't buy any mm-hmm. of that. Um, I want to see more visitation, more tourism, more, 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 more. I knew that. You know, of course you knew that. Everybody does. <laughs> well, thank you. You know, and it is, it is a unique thing. I mean, that it, it, there's all this talk about direct-to-consumer sales and the economic component, but there's another component to it. If you go as a tourist to, you know, wherever you travel, you go to a museum, you go to a beach, you go anywhere, there's no engagement. You can enjoy the museum, you can enjoy the beach, you can enjoy visiting a a national park or a monument Mm -hmm. or whatever it is, but there's no direct engagement. Part of what makes tourism here so interesting is this idea of engagement tourism, the idea that you get to talk to the vintner, the winemaker, the chef, the whatever it is. And that's an important part of what it's all about. Oh, exactly. And you take and you that can... away or you start messing with that, and it change, I think it changes the equation dramatically. It's not just about the sales. I mean, that's an important part, and a lot of people are making that argument, but that's only part of it. Well, and, but part of the engagement is taking the wine home with you. Right. From where you were. And you talk to the person who made it or who owned the winery. Mm -hmm. No, I'm very supportive of that. I think it's just how much of that. And I don't have a position on that. You know, I I did my shot. Yeah, you don't don't take position. I knew that. I just wanted to sort of put it in context. John Tudor, Napa County Clerk, Assessor, Registrar, Recorder. As always, I thank you so much for being with us. I look forward to our next occasion. Thank you. Thanks for listening to NapaBroadcasting.com. Napa Valley Radio for the way we live now.